Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church Podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Freedom Church. Welcome to those watching online and those on site and happy Independence Day. Isn't it amazing, like Pastor Jonathan said, to be part of a free country where we get a chance to worship. There's countries all around the world that they don't get that opportunity. And uh, one of the things that some philosopher says, America is great because America is good. When America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. So let's pray for our country. Let's pray that revival would stir the hearts of the people because it starts in the grassroots and that God would just do amazing things and that we would continue to be a light to the world. And how many of you guys know America needs revival? We need revival. It starts with me. I need revival and I need it. So let's ask the Lord. Lord, we, we pray for our country, Lord. We pray that you would stir our affections back to you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you and celebrate freedom. But Lord, more than anything else, would you stir a revival in this country? And Lord, we don't ask you to start it out there in someone else. We ask you to start it inside our hearts, that we would love you, that you would stir affection for you, that you would draw us to Jesus like never before. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would continue to keep the liberties I know that we have. There's all kinds of outside forces trying to come in and inhibit that. Lord, would you we thank you, Lord, and would you continue to bless our country in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Man, can I just say this? I am so thankful to be your pastor. Man, I, I don't just say this. You guys are incredible, awesome people. Like, in everything that you do, you go above and beyond. You always exceed my expectations. Like, I asked you, will you show up and will you make our new New Hope family feel welcome? And you did. And last Saturday, Sunday night, if you didn't miss it, was amazing. If you weren't here, you can't really replicate it. But we had every chair that was in here. It was awesome. Thank you so much. We have new family. And let me just give you kind of set up how that's going to look like. They're going to continue services all the way through July. And then August, they will join us together. But we have one of our, I see a couple of our new family here right here. We're going to go and raise your hand. Thank you. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. The rest of them are going to come in in August. So during that time in August, what's going to happen is we are going to, as they, they're here for a couple months as we figure it out, we're going to start renovating, rebranding, uh, and checking out the new property that the Lord has given us as a family. And we will kind of uh, see how we can best use that. At the same time, we're going to be doing some studies on the land to see, because we know that new property, the sanctuary is about this size, so it's not much bigger. So no matter where we're at, we're going to have to build. So if you've been given to the building campaign, guess what? A building is going to get built. We're just saying, where can we be the best stewards to build that building? So could you pray for wisdom, direction? God will lead us to the right. Civil engineers, architects, because God is getting ready to do amazing things, and we got to expand the territory, because if you were here, we do not have enough space. Not even two services is probably going to fill what God's going to do, so we got to be ready for what God's doing. Another thing that God's doing right now is we have 31 kids that are right now at youth camp. My kids, my, my, my wife and daughters are there. I'm get, having great reports of what God is doing. Continue to keep them in prayer. And then last week I challenged you guys, hey, there's an elderly lady that's in need in our community, city of Round Rock. And by the end of the day, I was flooded with phone calls. Her, mow, her lawn was mowed. Thank you so much for caring about others. Like I said, you guys are awesome. It's awesome to be the pastor at Freedom Church. So this morning, I want to start off this message with a, with a game called Would You Rather. How many guys have ever the game would you rather me and my girls play it in long road trips and it's with questions and you say would you rather do this or that so here's the question this morning as we get everything going for the fourth of july weekend would you rather have unlimited starbucks for a year 
or unlimited Chick-fil-A for a year? Okay, raise, let me raise every hand and say, who would say I would have unlimited Starbucks for a year? Anybody? Man, those are coffee-holics right there. Who would have God's chicken for a year right there? That's what I'm saying. These are the true believers right here. He, he, here's another one. W would you rather listen to bagpipe music for an hour or banjo music for 10 hours? That's a tough one, right? How many say ba bagpipe music for an hour? How many say banjo for 10 hours? I'm like, hey, let me just get it over with right away, right? That's, that's what I'm saying. Here's another one. This, this is probably the toughest one I, I was. Would you rather sneeze every two minutes or always have the cessation to sneeze but never sneeze? Both are horrible. Horrible. Who says I would rather sneeze every two minutes? Who says I would rather live with the sensation to sneeze? I don't even know. Ah, it would be crazy. It, man, what's interesting about the would you rather game, it's all about predicting happen, ha happiness and minimizing frustration. When you think about it, the reality is many of us are playing would you rather with every decision that we make. And this morning, as we continue the series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell us how our decisions today determine where our treasure will be tomorrow and for eternity. Jesus is essentially saying this morning, would you rather have treasure here for a little while on earth? Or would you rather have treasure in eternity forever? See, in the middle of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus stops and he deals with this subject that we all get nervous about money. In fact, did you know that Jesus talked a lot about money? Half of all the parables Jesus told were about money and possessions. Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell. You know that Jesus talked more about money than prayer and faith combined. Why? Jesus certainly didn't need our money. Nowhere in the Gospels will you find Jesus taking an offering. Jesus could take five loaves and two fish and turn it to an all-you-can-eat buffet in the middle of a desert. Jesus didn't need money. And when Jesus needed to pay a tax bill, he sent Peter to pull out uh, money out of a fish's mouth. Jesus didn't talk about money because he needed it. He talked about it because of this. He knew the money, he knew the power money had over us as individuals. Because here's the truth that Jesus is going to teach us. Money reveals what we treasure. Jesus said it this way in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we've all heard these verses. They're, sometimes we've heard them so much they can be like white noise in the background. But Jesus really wants us to understand this because Jesus is telling us there is this unique and mysterious relationship between your heart and your pocketbook. And Jesus says, if you want to know where your heart is, you got to look to see where your money is going. Because when it comes to money, Jesus says, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. Like everything Jesus has been teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he would say if he were here this morning, he says, look at your bank account, look at your Venmo, look at your cash app. See where you're spending your money, and that's what you treasure. That's what you worship. Because what you do with your money really reveals three things. It tells us this. What you love most, what you trust in most, and what kingdom 
you are living for. And if there ever was a culture that needed to hear this particular message that Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount about money, it's our culture. Do you realize that we are the wealthiest culture in the history of the world? I know a lot of us, we, we don't feel rich, but reality is we are. Did you know that only 3% of the world's population owns a car? That's three in 100 people. So if you own a car, you are mega, mega rich. And reality is most of us own multiple cars. 50% of people in the world work for less than $2 a day. I've been to some of these places. And according to a global rich list, if you make $34,000 a year, you're the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. Like, I don't feel wealthy. And if you make, as an individual, $48,000 a year, you're in the top 1%. The reality is in our culture, we have a lot of opportunities to exercise this message that God has given more than any other culture in the world. It is a blessing, but one day we will stand accountable for God with that. See, according to several studies, Americans are storing a staggering amount of earthly treasure or junk here in this world. See, the Gazette reported this, that the average that Americans last year spent, check this out, $38 billion in storage last year for the extra belongings. It's like everywhere you, a new building's going up, like what is that? And it's like, oh, store another storage facility. There are 45,000 storage facilities across our country. And the average storage unit is the size of a home in a third world country. This is mind-blowing. You could fit all the people in the United States of America inside these storage facilities. You can take care of the homeless problem really quick. I know these are sobering stats. According to the SSA, there are five times more storage units than Starbucks and McDonald's. And that's just the stuff we have in storage. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, 25% of people with two car garages don't have room to park the, garage, the car in the garage. You're like, yeah. I got a garage, but my car is not in there. Why? Because we got a lot of stuff in there. Wow. Like, man, this is not me talking. I'm just saying this is Jesus talking. This message is messing me up just like it's hitting you. The Los Angeles Times reported that there are 300 items in the average American home. 300,000 items. In your house, there are 300,000 items. And a study in Forbes said the average American woman owns, check this out, 30 outfits. One for every day of the week. Like, yeah, think about all your outfits. In 1930, wait, one for every day of the month, I'm sorry. In the 1930, that number was only nine. And this is, this is pretty crazy. Every year, the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing or donates. And the most sobering stat I found was in the Wall Street Journey Journal. It said this, Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods. In other, wor in other words, goods that we don't need. So what is this? Bottom line is this, in our culture, we are storing up a lot of treasure or junk that we're going to quickly find useless. Growing up as a kid, my dad would always take me to the junkyard. My dad was a firefighter. He worked 24 on, four days off. And when he wasn't a firefighter, he would repair vehicles. 
and he would just do some jobs and find some old cars. One of his hobbies, he would find some old cars and repair them and sell them at an auction. And I used to love to hang out with my dad when it was his time when he was not at the fire department. He would take me to the junkyard and he would spend the whole day in the junkyard and he would just find spare parts. And I couldn't help but think as a kid that all this junk not too long ago was new. That car that was parked, that is rusting, was somebody's new car at one time. People were excited to have it. Now it's rotting away. And the difference between somebody treasuring something and the difference between somebody tossing something is one thing. Time. That junk is treasure plus time. I want to say that. Junk is treasure plus time. The new car will eventually get old. The new house will one day be a pile of rubble. Those new clothes will soon be in a goodwill tub to be given away. Our greatest earthly treasure will be junk. And the difference between earthly treasure and junk is this thing called time. And what Jesus is saying, that we are the middleman between treasure and junk. And what we do in the middle will determine the true treasure that we have forever. So I want you to think about it that way. You have been given a lot. Too much has been, I have been given a lot. Too much is given, much is expected. And what are we going to do with the lot that God has given us? Like, oh, Jesus. When, man, this, man, this Sermon on the Mount has been difficult to go through, hasn't it? It hits our hearts. But can we pray that God just gets, let's, allows his word to get into us? Let's pray. Lord, I know this is an uncomfortable subject because you dealt with it so much. But your word is alive and it's active. And Lord, I pray that you would just begin, say this, Lord, open my ears to hear and open my heart to receive. And Lord, help me to be a good steward of the middle between treasure and junk. Amen. Let me just clarify this. Jesus isn't against us having stuff. In fact, I believe that Jesus teaches that God wants to bless us. And I believe that God wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing. So let me tell you, God isn't against us having stuff. God is against stuff having us. C.S. Lewis said this, that wealth has a way of knitting a man's heart to the world. That's why Jesus addresses this issue of money so many times, so often. His goal is not to get the money out of our pockets. His goal is to get the idols out of our hearts. Because Jesus wants us to be generous. He doesn't want us to be greedy. He wants us to live a life in a way that we treasure him. And that ultimately as we treasure him, we will have treasure in heaven. And the question that Jesus is asking us this morning is what you're doing with your earthly, earthly treasure today, show the world that you love Jesus and he will be your treasure forever. See, most Christians, this is according to stats, they give about 2.5% of their money away. The average secular person gives away 1.8%. Does that scream that we live for a different world and a different kingdom and have different priorities? I'm not trying to guilt you into giving your money, but I'm letting you know that you're missing out if you're not generous. Here's the principle. Generosity is not something God wants for you. It's got, it wants from you. It's something God wants for you. Generosity is not something that God wants from you. It's something he wants for you. Because why? This is what generosity does. It frees you from greed and it allows you to pursue heavenly treasure. Look what Jesus says. These powerful words. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then 
the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a confusing metaphor at first glance. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with money, but it does. Think about it this way. Imagine you get up at night. You turn on the light and your eye works. Your hand knows what to look for. You're not slamming your toes on the furniture. Your whole body benefits from the light and your eye working. But if your eye isn't working, and some of you guys have eyes that are old like me and don't work, man, I'm legally blind unless I have contacts. And what happens when you can't see? You're feeling around. You're walking around everywhere. You hit your toes. You stumble all over the place. Even though there could be a lot of light, the rest of your body, your whole body is in darkness in a sense because your eye is not giving you the direction of where you want to go. In the same way Jesus uses this metaphor, in the same way you see money, it destroys and messes up the rest of your life. It's the eye to your life. It sets the direction for your life. And if you do not have a right view of money, your body and everything about you will go in the wrong direction and you will pursue darkness. That's what Jesus says. That's why people do horrible, horrendous things for money. They'll kill for money. They'll exploit people for money. They'll sell their body. You see why Jesus has this very head-on attack for money? Because he realizes if we don't get this right in our heart, we will do people bad. And some of you have experienced this. Somebody's treated you bad. That you get when a deal has gone wrong, or maybe yourself. You money was a determining factor. And when money is the determining factor for your decisions, it really leads to some bad decisions. For example, you know people who chose a career or a job, not because they love it, not because it blesses the family or the church, not because it helps people, not necessarily because they're good at it. It just makes a lot of money. And for five to 10 years, the adrenaline can keep you going. But after a while, you feel empty inside. Why? Because your eye is dark. So many people go after a career and a passion just because of money. Many people take a job. They were happy. They were satisfied, but they'll move out of a good church. They'll move out of a good situation just so they can get a little bit more money. And then they get in that job and all of a sudden they're frustrated and they don't like it. And they realize this is not what they signed up for. Serving money leads to bad decisions. People will cheat or compromise because they are not because they are inherently dishonest people. It's because they felt like they needed money. And when faced with the choice of being without money, or their integrity, they chose compromising their integrity because they needed money so bad. It's why in Luke's account, Jesus follows up this I metaphor by saying, be on guard against greed. Jesus does not say that about anything else. He doesn't say that, be on guard against adultery. Why not? Because you know when you're committing adultery. You don't suddenly look up and say, oh, hey, you're not my wife. Sorry, my bad. You don't do that. But greed hides itself. It's subtle. It blinds you in a way that adultery and other sins don't. See, in my 22 years, people have come into my office and they shared their deepest, darkest secrets and struggles with me. I've prayed with them. I've wept with them. I've cried with them. We've seen God do amazing things. But I'll tell you this, in all my 22 years, not once have I had somebody ask prayer for being greedy. Nobody's asked for deliverance from greed. Greed is unrecognizable in our own hearts. If you're greedy, you're probably unaware of it. That's why Jesus says this. If you're greedy, you probably say other things like, I like nice things. I'm frugal. I'm thrifty. Jesus, knowing the pull of money, said this in verse 24. No one, and I want you to see that word, serve. That's a worship term. Can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate one or love the other, or he will be devoted. I want you to see there's another worship term. Devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot see that word again. The worship term of serve or devoted comes up three times in this. Either you will serve God. You, you cannot serve God and money. And the word money right there in the King James is actually translated mammon. Mammon was a god of riches in the ancient world. And the, what, what Jesus is telling us here, that when it comes to money, it has the ability to draw our affections in our worship. It pulls everything about out of us. You depend on it for provision. You depend on it for security. It takes care of you. So you obey what it demands. And if you don't obey it, you get scared. Because if you don't have it, you can't imagine living without it. So you will do everything. You will give your time. You will give your energy. You will give your effort to money. And you will do everything you can because you cannot imagine living a life where you do not have it. That's where people freaked out. In COVID, with all these things, they're losing their jobs. Especially in 2008, when the crisis came, you know how many people committed suicide after they lost their treasure? Their God died. And Jesus is saying, you, as my people, you have a different relationship with money. See, there are three categories people fall into when it comes to money. You're either a spender, you're either a saver, or you're either a steward. In verse 26... Jesus addresses these people. Look what he says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And he says, why do you worry? He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What Jesus does here is masterful. He gives us two different analogies that, identify two different types of people and personalities that you and I fall into. Jesus says, don't worry about money because look at the lilies of the field. The lilies of the field don't spend any money on themselves, yet they are so beautiful. This is to people who look to money for fulfillment and satisfaction. When they get extra money, they want to upgrade their house. They want to get a new car. They want to take vacation. They want to buy new clothes. These people look for money for fulfillment in their life. And what Jesus is saying, money shouldn't be your fulfillment I am your fulfillment. Look at the lilies of the valley. They have me and they have all they need. Then Jesus, on the other hand, turns to the crowd and says, consider the birds. They never save, but God takes care of them in every season. These are the people that are always saving for a rainy day. For them, money is security. These are the people that when they get an extra thousand dollars, they don't spend it. They save it. You got savers and you got spenders, according to Jesus. And in God's sense of humor, these two people always married each other. Some of you know this discussion when you get an extra thousand dollars. One of you, let's do this to the house. Yeah, there's no, let's put it away and let's save it. And you always think it's the other person's fault. But what you both fail to realize is that you have the same exact problem according to Jesus. Money has taken the place of God. For one, money is your fulfillment. So you look for it to get, make you happy. So you spend it. For the other, money is your security. So you want to save it because you never know what could be ahead. And God's not against saving. He's just talking about the relationship we have against saving. Jesus is saying, I want to be your fulfillment and I want to be your treasure. But when it comes to money, you have savers, you have spenders, but there's also a third option. It's called a steward. This is the person who looks to God as their primary source of happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction. They hold their money loosely. 
with all of its surrender to God, they don't see money as a primary source of happiness and fulfillment or security. They look to God and they realize that all that they own is really on loan from God. And they realize that more money is a tool and that God has given them this little bit of time in this little bit of space. And they're not going to hoard earthly treasure, but they're going to steward the earthly treasure that God has given them in a way that Jesus says that they will have heavenly treasure and that people will welcome him to heaven because of that they put God in first place like I said I believe that God wants to bless you I believe that God wants to pour out his provision in you but here's the reality he'll only do that if money doesn't grab a hold of you see God's not against you having money but the Bible says that man it's the love of money that is the root of all evil not money but here is what God is going to say in my first place am I truly number one because look how Jesus closes out his section of money with verse 33. But this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So here's the question. I know for most of us, God is an important part of our life. We love him. We wouldn't be here on the 4th of July weekend if he wasn't. But is he first? Is he first? Do you use your money for saving, for spending, or are you stewarding it for God's kingdom? Are you building treasure on earth or in heaven? So this morning, I want to walk you through a money quiz. I got it from Dr. Greer to help you analyze what comes first in your life. So you ready for this quiz? Here's the first question. You hear about a man who at 70 has managed his middle class income through meager living and careful savings with a current net worth of $8 million. Your first thought is, A, what a waste. Spending it would have been so much more fun. B would be, wow, he really did well. Hope I can do that too. Or C, he may have missed some key opportunities to experience the joy of generosity. Number two, your annual bonus is twice as much as you thought it would be. What do you first think? I'm headed out shopping and on vacation. B, I'm putting this on the mortgage. Or C, thank God for this provision. I can't wait to give this chunk away. A chunk of this away, not all the chunk, but a chunk of this. Number three, which of these excites you most? A four-star vacation across Europe? Maxing out all your retirement accounts for the year? Or C, generously giving to launch a new ministry or a missionary to reach people for Christ. Number four, the spending in my life is A, effortless. I love spending. <laughs> is it B, is it bothersome? I wish I could spend less. Or is it C, controlled? I feel good about the way it's managed. C, I mean, number five, success looks like. It's probably the weightiest one. Experiencing great food, travel, living comfortably, and driving a luxury car. B, success is retiring at 50. Or C, success is extending payoff of your mortgage and foregoing some luxuries in order to give and live a life that builds the kingdom. And making every decision to build the kingdom. If you answered mostly A, you're a spender. If you answered mostly B, you're a saver. And if you answered mostly C, C, you're a steward. See, spenders and savers both serve money. 
stewards serve God and use money. They use their money to build the kingdom of God. Because here's the thing about money. Money is a wonderful servant, but it's a horrible master. So I'm going to close by getting real practical and getting right, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf for you. Here they go. Let me give you three money choices of a godly steward. This is something that doesn't come naturally. This is something that we got to discipline ourselves to do. These are three choices godly stewards make all the time. First thing is they put God first with their money. They tithe. If you're new to church, man, the Bible talks about this. It's something that you see it's first. It's a universal biblical principle in the Old and the New Testament that the first 10% of everything that you have, you give to God. It's all throughout the Bible. Proverbs 3.9 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And when we put God first in our giving, this is what it does. It breaks greed and materialism off our lives. It's why God set up tithing. Every time we tithe, let me tell you, it's a spiritual statement. We say, God, the reason I have, I have, the reason I have everything that I have is because of you. When we tithe, we're making a statement with our money that God is in first place. And something supernaturally has the attachment that money has in your heart. When you give 10% and you write it out, it breaks that attachment and it puts God. It disciplines you to keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And let me just say, there's a promise from God when we give our tithe back to him that he will multiply it and if we, when we put him first. See, let me tell you what I've learned over there is you cannot outgive God. And many of us struggle financially because we haven't learned to put God first with our money. But God has promised when you acknowledge him that he will do more with the 90% than we can do with the 100%. People tell me all the, for, all the time, Benito, I can't afford to tithe. My response to them is you can't afford not to tithe. Watch God bless you. I could write a book over this last decade how, how I couldn't afford to give, but I gave anyways, and God provided supernaturally. Told you the story before when I first came to Freedom Church. Man, we had a small little savings account, and, and I remember we didn't have insurance, and Alana's teeth were hurting her one night. They were so much pain. She had to go to the dentist, and Jennifer went to the dentist, and that dentist appointment I still remember was $512. and like $12. We had $500 in our savings account, and we emptied our savings account. When that time, we had hardly, I just got a job as a substitute teacher, and I gave all my, my savings account away. And I remember that same day, I got my first check from Austin ISD as a substitute teacher. And I'm like, Lord, I can't afford to tithe. I got to start rebuilding my savings. And I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, you can't afford not to tithe. And I remember writing that tie check, the first thing that I did, I said, Lord, you're my provider, you're my provision, I trust you, you know everything that we have, God, would you meet my need? And I remember going to the mailbox and mailing off my tithe check that day, and right when I mailed off the tithe check, I kid you not, five minutes later, I got a call from a man in Dallas, I've met him once before, he says, we're driving through Austin, I love to meet you and your family. And I said, okay, we would love to get together. So we met there at Texas Roadhouse. They paid for the meal. We're talking. He says, you know, God put on our heart. We're in vacation. He told us to drive down to Austin. And he, he said, we wants to, he wanted us to write you this check. And they wrote me a check for the exact amount, $512, for the money that I tithe. And God did a miracle. And at that moment, I realized you can't outgive God. It's about trusting him. It's about putting him first. He will do the rest. Let, let me ask you, if you're a tither in here, 
How many of you guys have stories like that? Raise your hand all through this. There are so many stories of God's provision as we put him first. So the first thing is we put God first. The second thing is this. We invest generously into God's kingdom. First fruits offering and tithing is the beginning point of giving. But there's a difference between a tithe and an offering. An offering is above and beyond. Tithing maintains the kingdom work. Offerings advance the kingdom work. Psalms 112.5 says, God will come to him who is generous and lends freely. Good stewards are always looking for opportunities to be generous in everything that they do. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, lay up treasure in heaven. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says this, financial planners tell us when it comes to your money, don't think three months or three years ahead, think 30 years ahead. Christ, the ultimate investment counselor, takes it even further. He says, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. Five minutes after you die, how will you wish you spent your money? It's been said that John D. Rockefeller, when he passed away, his attorney held a press conference. Rockefeller was considered the richest man in the history of the U.S. It's estimated that if you factor in inflation, he would be worth $418 billion today. And during the press conference, one member of the media asked, how much money did Rockefeller leave behind? His attorney famously said, you know what he said? All of it. I've never seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse. This past year, one of the most wealthy, successful businessmen that I know personally, my uncle passed away. He's generous with his finances, generous with his resources, had several hundred and hundred thousand dollar cars. As he passed away, beautiful house, beautiful cars. But I remember his kids telling me, you know, the greatest legacy is not all the stuff that he left behind, but all the stuff that he helped churches to build and all the things that took place. This is just stuff. It's worthless now. One day it'll be gone. How, one day we're going to pass away in, in our beautiful garage and our beautiful cars and everything that we have will no longer be relevant. Just like the life of William Borden. He's the young man who was the heir to Borden Milk Company who walked away from it all to be a missionary in Egypt. His parents couldn't understand. He had an Ivy League education, was an incredible man. You can read about him. And when he went up to Egypt to be a missionary, only a few months into it, he contracted meningitis and died suddenly. Just a few hours before he died, someone asked him if this whole thing of coming to Egypt and being a missionary was a mistake. Just being there for three months, didn't even get a chance to learn the language. He was so weak, he couldn't talk. He grabbed a piece of paper and he wrote the words, no regret. He's buried in Cairo. And his very plain tombstone simply has his name in the dates of his short life with the phrase, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. But you know that his story and his obedience has impacted and inspired many for the kingdom. There's actually some people, and I want to be one of those people who look at the words of Jesus and say, man, this has to be real. And I want to live like that. So let me ask you a question. Are you, living in a lot, are you living life in a way that doesn't make sense if eternity isn't real? 
When you're really building treasure in heaven, you're going to do something. People are going to look at you and say, like, why are you doing that? doesn't make sense. Why are you living like that? Why are you giving like that? Why are you serving? Why are you spending so much time with that person? See, as Christians, we become generous people. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Our God is a giver. It's at the core of who he is. And one of the ways that you know that the gospel is inside of you, you become generous with everything that you have, just like our God. The third choice of a godly steward is this. They live with margin. Margin is space between yourself and your limits. If it takes 30 minutes to get there, you leave 39 minutes before. When you have margin in your life, let me tell you, it gives you a lot of flexibility and you can follow God's plan for your life. Because Proverbs 22.7 says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. That means that we are slaves to the debt, the things that come in our lives. But when you live with margin, it stops earthly treasure from getting in the way of you pursuingly, pursuing heavenly treasure. One of the reasons that Jennifer and I could start Freedom Church is because we lived with margin in our lives. It's one of the things we try to do. We had minimal debt and margin gave us the ability to pursue God's plan for our life. You know, I'm making this amount of money. Okay, I'll make $18,000 a year to start the church. I'll do these different things. I remember we were at a large church. We were making at that time uh, six figures around the time to come and make $18,000 a year to start the church. We had a company car and we started with Our kids, no insurance, starting the church, but I had margin because I knew that I didn't want want to build just a kingdom for Benito, but I wanted to do something that God had placed in my heart. I wanted to follow him. And we went from having a company car to now around one car, and with all these jobs that I was getting, I needed a car. And our culture says, we got to have this kind of car. We got to have all these different things. But I found a car. It was a 1991 Nissan Sentra. It was on the side of Wells Branch Street. And I bought it for $750. Lasted for three years. It's like hamsters were keeping the car running. The city wanted to use it to kill bugs. But we prayed and we fasted. And I realized I'm not going to get in debt. Man, when I would put my hands on the car, I had sticky stuff that I'd wipe down from who knows what. Jennifer would get grossed out of that car. But I'm like, man, Lord, it's not what I drive. It's what drives me. And I'm not going to get myself saddled in to some payment that's going to have me get another job. Lord, I need a job where I can focus on the church and check out at 5 o'clock so I can go after the Lord. I'll be a substitute teacher. I'll be a security officer. I'll do all these different things. And that margin allowed me to go after the Lord. And for some of us, one of the things that stops us from going after the Lord is we don't live with margin. Debt gets away from us. That's why we have classes like Dave Ramsey that helps us to get involved in all that. But most people in our culture, because here's the reality. God's way of living is to be generous. Most people don't live just according to that 100%. They live like 120%. So if you tithe as a Christian, you're all of a sudden living below because you're living at 90%. And then you want to start. So you're going to start. Let me as, as a Christian, you might not have all the things that the world has right away, but it's okay because you're living with margin and God is sending you up because he can use you. I read an article last week on CSNBC. The article was titled, one out of every three Americans don't have enough money to make it to the next paycheck. That's 33%. According to this article, those who made between forty dollars to $50,000, 28% of those individuals ran out of money before the next paycheck. But what was astounding was, for those who made over $200,000 a year, 
Those individuals had a higher percentage of people not making it to the next paycheck. It was 32%. We think if we had more money, it would solve all our problems. But like the great theologian, notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, more problems. The problem has never been about money. It's about your heart. Jesus isn't really concerned about your money. He's concerned about your heart. And when he has your heart, he has your time, he has your talent, he has your treasure, he has everything. And when somebody has given their heart to Jesus, Jesus can use that life. He can use them to do incredible things. They're no longer confounded by all these obligations that the world has. And God says, Jesus is saying, don't let greed control you. Be controlled by the God who created the universe. He wants to set you free. He'll meet your needs. He's Jehovah Jireh, your provider. Trust him. And let your affections go to him. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church Podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.